This is Practical Philanthropy with me, Lynn Tomlinson, the podcast where inspirational people share their experience of giving their time, money or skills to have transformational impact on society. Hello and welcome back to Practical Philanthropy. Episode three is called The Big One and for good reason, because we are exploring the role philanthropists play in tackling climate change. In this episode, I talk to Sophie Marple of Gower Street. Sophie and her husband Nick have been funding in the climate sector for over six years. This followed a strategic review of their giving in 2017, which was guided by the brilliant and always challenging Jake Heyman from 10 years time. I'm really looking forward to talk to Sophie because climate is an increasing area of focus for philanthropists and our clients. For obvious reasons, it's one of the biggest crises facing humanity, but it's also a really hard sector to fund and it can be really overwhelming and a difficult place to be. So I can't wait to learn from Sophie's experience. But before we talk to her, let's hear from our previous guests with some of their top tips for giving. Hi, I'm Mary Rose Gunn. I'm founder and CEO of The Four. My top tip for funding small charities would be to use other people's research. There are so many out there and it's really difficult to find them. So piggyback off everything else everybody else has learned and you can start with us, thefour.org. Thanks to our amazing guests for sharing their insights. Do listen to their episodes. They are all brilliant in their own way. And so now let's get to episode three. So um, welcome to Practical Philanthropy, Sophie. Thank you for inviting me. It's nice to see you, Lynn. So before we get into the weeds on the role that philanthropy can play in helping to uh, limit temperature rise, can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Because I think it's a really interesting one. You weren't always funding climate related issues, were you? No. So uh, my husband, Nick, and I set up um, our trust in 2007. And we set it up um, and set up a strategy within kind of a year um, that was focused on education, um, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa and also um, in the UK, nearby where we were living, uh, mainly Islington, actually. And um, in sub-Saharan Africa, there was a focus on um, outperforming for girls, um, low barriers to entry and keeping them in school. Um, and we we continued on that strategy for about um, 10 years. And during that time, we had kids. We sort of kind of took our eye really off the trust, to be honest, uh, because we were doing, you know, we were doing other things. And um, and then um, when our youngest daughter went to school, which was um, when she was five, which was like 2017, um, we then spent some time doing a strategic review, which we did with Jake Heyman at 10 years time. And that helped us really understand how to be a good funder and how to make impact as a funder. Um, and also at the t- same time, we were aware that, um, well, the world was changing actually, and we were coming more and more aware of the climate crisis. A number of our, um, of our, um, grants were actually coming to an end after many, many years of funding. And it was the perfect opportunity for us to begin to, to shift into, you know, what is the biggest crisis facing humanity? Fantastic. And you talked about um, when we met previously, you talked about the sort of value of that advice that you saw that you saw from Jake Heyman. Could you just dig into that just a little bit more for us? Yeah, so it was it was really interesting actually meeting Jake because my husband 
heard about him. He'd, he'd read an article about him in the Financial mm. Times. And he was quite combative, actually, quite challenging um, mm. in terms of the way philanthropy and way philanthropists um, tended to tended to work, you know, treating it as a hobby and not really um, understanding the impact they were trying to make. So therefore, a lot of philanthropy ends up being a waste of money. So mm. uh, so we decided to have a chat, chat with him because at this point, as I said, we were we were ready to make make some changes in what we were doing and really start digging in, actually. And, um, and so he came to meet us and, and it was funny because he takes you at 10 years time, they take you on a learning journey mm-hmm. and you say what, what the subject area is they, and they really do go under the skin of it, but you do not know in advance what it's going to look like because, and, and nor should you, because ultimately a learning journey, that's what it is absolutely bespoke to what you're trying to do. So he came to meet us and sort of told us that there would be a price tag of, you know, sort of 25,000 that would be so be connected to this. And we're a bit like, oh, I'm not really sure that's, that's a grant. I mean, it was incredible. It was transformatory what Jake did. He, because I think it was as much as anything, it was the time we spent with him talking about how you can give more effectively and for longer and, and also really follow your interests. Because I think he is all about how you, how you make the most impact you possibly can and to make the most impact you possibly can you've got to be interested in what yeah. you're to do. otherwise you just give up and um, yeah. if it's difficult if it's you know, if it's really really super challenging and you i mean if you do not like policy and you do not like reading policy documents don't fund in policy because you're going to have to read a lot of policy documents <laughs> you're not going to do it for long because you're not going to want to yeah. do it so really, you know there is a balance between interest and 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 impact and i and he talks a lot about that he also just taught us about understanding the field in which you're you're funding into because if you don't understand it you just you don't know where to put your grants you won't make the decisions you won't get the money out of the door and ultimately as a foundation that's your job your job is to yeah. get the money out the door Exactly. And I think that that point about understanding is critical, particularly in relation to climate, because there's probably nothing more complex. So, so right. So you mentioned since 2017, you did that strategic review and started funding climate. So that learning curve must have been like really, really steep. Um, and then out of that, you decided to focus on three core areas. So you've got a, a strategy around three core areas and they're the ones that you you know, with your experience and expertise, you, they're the ones you think that will make the biggest impact and the ones that people should be funding. So can you just talk us through what they are and why they're so important? Well, what I would say first is, again, we would say that we fund the areas that we have interest in hmm. as much as anything. We okay. do think it has, um, it has impact where we've chosen to fund. But again, as you said, it's like a really complex sector. There is so much going on. And I think that's why often people shy away from it. I mean, there's lots of other reasons that we can d- dig into at any point um, about why people shy away from climate. But one of them is because you look under the bonnet, you go, oh, my goodness, how much stuff is going on here? And where am I going to make the most impact? And what we felt was that um, is that, yes, you need to make the impact, but you've got to you've got to do it where you feel most comfortable spending the time really yes um we kind of have an overall umbrella of uh of of what we're trying to achieve and that is you know if you're always thinking about the vision for the world that is fossil fuels in the ground because ultimately um climate change is is completely driven by our extraction and burning of fossil fuels so um so that would be our our um our overarching umbrella and then within that we are looking at ways that are most effective to make that happen and one of the main areas that we fund in is social movements and community work and that is it's notoriously underfunded but getting people to understand that driver of climate change and then being able to to speak 
truth to power and say we don't want a world that is that is based on fossil fuels we think is an extremely strong and effective way of of making change so we, we work a lot around that we work a lot around that narrative we also work a lot around um uh around natural climate solutions and actually the reason really around the natural climate solutions a lot of that is because it's a nice place to be actually yeah. um because it's it's the clue is in the name in the word solution is that quite often when you're talking about keeping fossil fuels in the ground and you're talking about social movements you're talking about no like we don't want this. but when you're talking about natural climate solutions you're seeing change you're seeing people who are really thinking about the regeneration of the of the of, of our world and that is a beautiful place to be and and um so sometimes you need to balance what you're doing on one side <laughs> something that you really feel like recharges you you know yes. it's, it's hard work it's hard it's yeah. not you know to, to decide to, to fund in this area is to really understand what we're doing to the world mm. and the future for our kids which is not good it is not it is bleak um and you know sometimes that can be quite a hard place to be yeah well well done you for keeping at it it's absolutely fantastic so one thing about funding climate i think from sort of people on the outside is that you think it's typically associated with you know really large sort of multi-million dollar grants that sort of thing but that isn't the reality of, of it because you fund grassroots organizations where your money can really make a difference so um can you tell us a bit about this sector that that you sort of reference is growing up to accept the funding from some of these other larger grants so um so when we the i think that probably the statistic that that really did sort of push us more than anything to get into the climate sector um, was the statistic that less than 2% of philanthropic funding globally goes towards climate, which again, I'd say is, you know, it's the biggest crisis facing humanity. So it's a bit, it's tiny. And I think also we had, we had been skirting on the edges of climate because when we worked in, you know, working in education, and we still do work in education, you know, um, educating girls and women is a, is a climate pillar. Um, but when we were working, working very like solely in education, we would often come up again, you know, people who we were funding would say, would you fund this climate work? And we would go, no, we are not climate funders. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think we were quite, um, you know, we were shocked. I think we were, we were saying we weren't climate funders because we just had this view that billions, I mean, this is the biggest crisis facing humanity, clearly billions of governmental money, billions of corporate money must be going into this. And then to really realize actually that was not the case at all. You know, it was, it was the, it was this kind of no go area that people were just not really funding in. And, and that was quite a shock to us, but the benefit was of course, when we started looking at these organizations that we did want to fund, then our, our size of grants, which are usually between about, you know, it's usually between 25 and sort of 40,000 pounds as, as a yearly grant could really make a difference. Mm -hmm. And then over time, um, what we've done is really hone our strategy into how we can really make the most impact by giving that level of grants, you know, understanding where we could, where we would sit within this, this sector. And we realized that we sit in, in where, um, small organizations can come to us and they're trying to prove their product basically it's like getting a minimum viable product so we help them along the journey and help them um, grow the capacity that they have so get the governance etc in place so that they are in a in a position to go to the bigger funders like the esmes the qcfs the um the cifs you know we can't we're never going to be able to um offer them funding that, that matches anywhere near that level of funding but we can get them on their way 
So we start very much at the small organizations, the people doing different stuff, the people that we go, okay, and we because we've got to know the sector so well, you can hear ideas and go, oh yeah, no, do you know what that's got a that's got a chance. Or its yeah. impact is incredible, so therefore mm-hmm. it's worth the risk. Sophie's highlighted that her motivation for financing climate was this realization of the sheer lack of funding that is directed towards the sector. Historically, less than 2% of funding has gone into nature-based solutions. Encouragingly, this has doubled over the past year or so, but it's still woefully short of what we need. Another reason for the increased focus towards climate-related funding, in my experience, is this rising awareness that climate change and outcomes for people and nature are inextricably linked. For example, we cannot eradicate poverty without limiting temperature rise, given that climate change disproportionately affects the poorest people in the world. Even seemingly unrelated issues such as heart disease are linked due to the role air pollution plays in causing this disease. It's estimated that 62% of all climate-related deaths are attributable to cardiovascular disease. And those focused on funding issues connected to youth and children may want to consider the impact on their mental health, with a recent survey of 10,000 students highlighting that over half reported feeling sad anxious, angry, powerless, helpless and guilty over climate change and 75% of them found the future frightening due to the world they are likely to inherit. And given that virtually every area of funding has some intersection with climate change, this therefore means that it's possible to apply what we call a climate lens to your philanthropy, irrespective of the area you are funding. And there's some great resources out there for those who want to dig deeper into this. The Australian Environmental Grantmaking Network, www.aegn.org.au, has an excellent section on applying a climate lens. And it's been developed, of course, for the Australian grant makers, but the general principles can easily be adopted for other countries. And closer to home here in Europe, Active Philanthropy have provided an excellent guide called Funding the Future, How the Climate Crisis Intersects with Your Giving. I'd recommend both of those if you want to dig deeper into this area. Last month I spoke to Mary Rose Gunn at the four, who I'm sure you know, and that's a very similar pr- approach to them. Um, and one of the things that, that she was talking about, which really resonated with me, because when I was reading your website, I saw this amazing statistic, which I loved, which is last year you had 36 or invited 36 charities to apply for grant funding, and you actually granted money to 33 of them. And um, I thought I think that's really amazing just because she was explaining to me how brutal the landscape is for those people who are trying to raise money and just how much of their time is taken in funding and you know funding applications and that really detracts them from delivering the projects that they set out to sort of deliver so could you just give us a little bit of context as to how you manage that funding process and why that's so successful um so a book that we read Across our trust, um, and it was Jake gave it to us actually in in two thousand seventeen. Was a book called "It Ain't What You Give, It's the Way That You Give" by Caroline Fines, and it was absolutely transformatory for us because. And I think as a funder, everyone, if I was the charity commission, I'd say if you're setting up a foundation, you have to read that book. You're allowed to give a penny away, and that's because it it talks about how much money as funders we waste 
because we are asking for more and more information. Mm. They are asking, we go for these long processes. And during that time, we are taking those, um, those committed people away from the work we actually want them to do to, to, to help on whatever they're working on. So in our case, you know, we are against the clock in climate. So I don't want to spend a year deciding on a grant because that year is a year that that person is not working on their, on, on their product and what they're trying to actually achieve. So, um, so we, we were very strict. So that helped us think about our, um, our process. And we have a pretty simple um, application form. We also do our due diligence upfront, but we do not take anyone through to a meeting to a trustee meeting unless we are 90 percent sure that we're going to um yeah. for us we you know we we have um two members of staff they spend time up front like having conversations with you know something will come to us we think it's a good idea we we go and have a quick conversation with the with them to find out whether they're in the ballpark of what we might fund um once we've got to that point we do all the kind of checklist of are they the right type of governance organization etc that we can, can fund them and then, and only at that point would we say you can fill in an application form. And then when we do that, we will work with them to really to make sure that the application is something that the trustees are going to going to approve. And it's not, um, I don't mean to, for them to, to say something that they're not. Mm. That's the process. We're really trying to work with them to make sure that actually it's something that will be successful in funding so that we have made sure that they are, yeah, they've got the best chance of success. We're a very collaborative trust mm. trust. So we talk a lot to our trustees and, you know, so we, there's never, there's very rarely any surprises. Yeah, fantastic. And I did want to talk to you about collaboration. It links back to that point you've said about, you know, you look under the bonnet of climate and you're like, oh my God, this is, you know, this is so huge. And I think one of the challenges specifically is that you've got people who are fighting against you, which you probably don't get in other sectors. So I'm thinking, for example, you know, the amount of funding that goes into the big lobbying machines um, and and how that can slow down, you know, policy and regulation. And you've got to, you know, these small groups of people have got to collaborate and really stand up against that. And it's really important because I read something in The Guardian, which was absolutely horrendous around lobbying, which is that at COP27, I think there were over 650 fossil fuel lobbyist delegates. And that was more than the delegates from the top 10 countries who are actually affected by climate, um, by climate change, by global warming. And we saw the same thing at COP15, where there was so much um, lobbying going on to sort of delay and block really important um, biodiversity sort of progress and I think influence map said less than um, only five percent of the support was actually positive at COP15 and that's all because people are lobbying and diluting sort of messaging down etc so so if we need to collaborate at scale within the philanthropy sector can you just tell us how we do that or how you do it or how you think it will work well, I think, you know, first of all, just to your point in terms of it is the amount of lobbying against you know, on keeping the status quo, because ultimately what we are pushing for in the sector is for change. And for a lot of people, they don't want that change, even though changes, whether you like it or not, you know, and that, that change could be. Epic. So, um, yeah, and it is some and going back to my first point about like how we fund that's why we do fund quite often the natural climate solutions because that's the bit where you don't literally hold your hands up hold your head and go oh my god really is this really where we're at this you know knowing on an international places tony gutierrez saying you've got this is the climate decade and then you've got governments 
approving um well our government yes hundred oil licenses up i mean and and we know we cannot explore or extract one more drop of oil of oil we just can't so you know it's just it's 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 you know and it is it's painful i can tell you that's what i mean about feeling it's you know you you know you need to keep your spirits up in this the uh, sector but what i would say is it's the most collaborative sector that I've ever worked in. So I think a lot of that um, lies at the feet of EFN, the Environmental mm -hmm. Finance Network, who've done an amazing job of bringing um, a, a, a massively diverse number of, of funders together. Um, and they and we meet quite regularly. And through that, we have we've funders of um, we are in quite a number of little kind of co-funding um, cohorts um and often if there is an if there is an organization like oh my goodness they need to get some money quickly mm -hmm. we will go off and find that 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 funding for them so we'll go and talk to other people who are in the sector also efn do a rapid response fund which you get lots of different people will fund under one idea and then obviously that fund if that um uh, um if that organization needs funding ongoing they'll come back to that that cohort and see if they'll fund again or fund more, et cetera. So that's kind of, um, but unfortunately, still there is just not the money being deployed quickly enough. Um, and it's, you know, to, to in, in comparison to that massive lobbying, you know, um, groups that are just, yeah, it's, it's, it is, it's David and Goliath going on. Absolutely. And, um, it sounds like sort of radical, bold actions needed, and you seem very up for that. So um, is that why you um, personally funded um, Extinction Rebellion? And can you just tell us a little bit about, um, you know, that journey to do that? Um, and then I am right in that, that you funded it personally rather than through the charity. Yes, we funded it personally. Um, well, I mean, it was it was it was quite extraordinary, actually. We met. So it was Jake who met with. so. If you cast your mind back, which is quite hard actually, to 2018, where there was yeah. not, you know, there was, there were NGOs working in climate, but it was really very much underneath, you know. So there was Friends of the Earth, there was uh, WWF, there was, you know, probably Greenpeace was a little more overt, but generally it's all very much under this kind of very centre right kind of, you know, feeling of we don't really, we don't really fund climate, we just fund a bit of it. Suddenly, Extinction Rebellion burst onto the scene and I was getting emails from them. I was thinking, what is this? But thank goodness someone's doing something. Someone mm. is properly stepping up here. And I was actually very excited by it. Jake uh, went to meet them and then um, said, would I go meet them? So I went and met them. And then we decided between us, we would do um, an event that brought together um, lots of potential funders for XR. Um, and, and it was just, we did two kind of like big round circles, like 40 people in the room, and Gail um, Bradbrook and Skeena Rathor, who are co-leaders of Extinction Rebellion, came and did a kind of question and answer session. And um, after the second one, we went to the pub and I had no idea what they were planning. Like, I just did not. I mean, even if someone had actually told me what that rebellion in 2019, April 19, would have been like, I kind of wouldn't have believed them, I don't think. But um, she said, we're going to do this thing. It's going to be really exciting. And I'd heard about them blocking the bridges in November 2018. And then... And she said, but we need this money. And I remember just saying, Jake just saying to me, can you raise it? And I went, um, I can try. Okay, mm -hmm. I'll try. So we put in, I think, uh, I think we put 5,000 pounds in early and then we put in another 5,000. 
And then I went to a couple of other um, philanthropists that I knew and just said, look, if you're in climate, this feels like it's the most exciting thing that's happening. You can see that, you know, they're bold, they're excited, something big is going to happen as a result of it. And so I encouraged um, some more money in and we managed to raise £40,000, which I think was, you know, the difference between not having some of those, that incredible sort of um, iconic imagery, mm. you know, like pink boat and all the stuff that happened on, on Waterloo Bridge, that, that sort of enabled some of that stuff to happen. So, but I mean, if someone had said to me about it, maybe I wouldn't have funded it. I don't know. I don't know. Just yeah. because sometimes you just have to take a risk. Sometimes you have yeah. to see someone. And really when you're funding at our stage of, um, of the, of the kind of development of an idea, you have to take risk. Yeah. You've just sometimes just go, go, this person looks like they could do something brilliant. Let's mm -hmm. just go with it because I, you know, I, I'm, we're not funding later on when it is proven, you know, yeah. went off, went on and got SIF money and, and much other bigger funders in, involved. They probably, they always still need money. So don't think that I'm saying that they don't, and we still fund now. So, um, you know, it's important that, 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 that continues, but yeah, you have to take the risk at the time. Yeah. And any criticism, I suppose, that comes from that, which, you know, it's been, it's a frustrating one, isn't it? Because it's been divisive. Um, but then can you tell me a little bit about the big one, which is um, the sort of almost feels like an evolution of, of XR, the, the recent um, sort of protests in, in London? Yeah, so, um, so I was again really pleased to see this because I think through 2019 and then we went into lockdown and it became very hard for Extinction Rebellion because obviously the tactics were very much about lots of people on the street and that could no longer happen. Um, it became like how could they how they could they stay relevant and I think it's really you cannot expect any organization particularly one that developed the way that they did so quickly to just continue like what what is the next step what you know it's very hard it's particularly they you know they're based on distributed organizing model and that's quite hard to you know, just to keep that going and keep that relevant and keep everyone still doing what they're supposed to, you know, it, it just, it's, it's hard. So I think there were, there's been conversations inside about how they, you know, how they, they stay relevant. And I think this is a great way of doing it, which is becoming a convening mm -hmm. organization, whether that stays like that for long, I don't know, but just for this particular four days, it was such a joy to see so many civil society organizations yeah. come together and picket parliament and say, you know, this really is important. And I went on the Friday, which was all the pickets outside the um, uh, the uh, parliamentary de departments. But then um, the next day was the big biodiversity march. And um, and we were, so I also run an organization called Mother's Climate Action Network. And um, this organization, we were part of the parents group. And so there was lots of activities for kids and so on. So I was there doing that. But then we, part, we went on to this march and the march was so well attended that we had to stand for an hour and a half before we could even get going because the people at the end were finishing by the time we hadn't even started, you know. So it had become like a gridlock. And that was, and do you know the most frustrating thing in that? No. Any media coverage? None. So yeah. Get so upset when someone goes and throws soup at the glass that, that protects a famous painting. They get yeah. outraged. How disgraceful this could happen. Well, then when there is a legal, but they, you know, they can't stop themselves um, uh, reporting on it. It's all over the place. Do something legal where you've got 60 to 70,000 people 
stepping up for something which as again 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 is the biggest crisis facing humanity and hardly a word on it hardly a word there's no surprise that young people who are desperate because they're thinking about their future just say right i'm going to do the thing that is actually going to get attention and i'm going to throw some soup at van gogh you know i i'm absolutely stunned at the complicity of the media industry it's just it's a disgrace it's absolute disgrace I did want to talk to you about that and it was sort of related to a little bit to the lack of funding and the role that the media perhaps does play in that because you know if you look at for example the the floods in Pakistan um, where you had 33 million people displaced we've still got over 5 million people who are relying on contaminated water and water from wells and ponds because the floods basically destroyed the water system and we we hear absolutely nothing about it in the UK there's there's no reporting on it or very little reporting on it um, is there anything that you've been funding aside from obviously the big movement piece around XR but something around the media blackouts and I had a similar conversation with Alexandra Chapman from Ethiopia because they have the same problem that there, you know, there's no financing, no, but and no coverage of what's going on in that country. We fund an organisation called Citizens UK. They are organisers. They came to us two years ago, and I was a bit like, "What are these people coming to talk to us about?" You know, they're like a bunch of faith groups and whatever. Well, they said came to us and said in the mayoral hustings um, for the um, for the the London mayor, um, they they do three pledges. Is that's part of their mandate and then they say and one and the third one for the first time ever was climate and i said goodness me how did you manage that and daniel who is from from assistance uk said to me by not mentioning the word climate mm. what we said was the question we posed was would you do you want clean jobs do you want clean air do you want warm homes mm. now no one is going to say no i don't want any of those no. thank you so what we've been really failed to do in the climate sector is make it relatable, to make this crisis relatable. Like the co-benefits to climate action is just, is massive, they're massive. So, you know, if we just even think of those three, you know, properly insulated homes, clean air, jobs where, you know, good clean jobs in, in renewable energy. I mean, that jobs that you can really be proud of. I mean, those are, that's the way we need to be talking about this not using these abstract terms that people just don't understand and can't relate to and can very easily shut off from and say so so yes so you in answer to your question yes we we don't specifically fund in the media but we do we do fund communicators like we find an excellent organization called herd um who work with broadcasters and print media to, to to talk about how you talk about climate um in a way that people will listen and um, Heard particularly does a lot of spokespeople, spokesperson narrative training to help people who are talking in this this field um, to talk about what is important and really yeah. and not get caught, not get hung up on, you know, not get hung up on individual actions and not get hung up on um, on like scientific targets because while yeah. they're important, it just switches everybody off. We're in Trafalgar Square. I'm making a documentary for Channel 4 about the future of climate protesting. Um, is it working? If it isn't working, what are we going to do? Because we need to find a solution, basically. And is protest a part of that solution? Where should we go? How, how disruptive do we have to be? So it's an important question, a challenging question. And, you know, I want to see it from the front line. So I've come down to this Just Stop Oil protest. They've just finished. They were in the Strand. 
I guess they were on the road for about 15, maybe 20 minutes before the police decided that the protest was too disruptive and they issued what they call a Section 12. Um, this gives them the capacity to ask the protesters to leave the road. Um, if they don't, they can arrest them under the Public Order Act. Um, as it was, it was all very amicable. The police said, would you leave? And, and everyone stepped out of the road. And they're just behind me now regrouping, thinking about what to do next. What's your view of the direct action groups like Just Stop Boiler taking? In this, in this case, it was a slow march right down the strands. But in other instances, it has been more disruptive. Well, uh, look, you know, a few weeks ago, I was here in London on, uh, at a rally called The Big One, organised by Extinction Rebellion and, and lots of others. So there were 60,000 people here in London. It was a very friendly atmosphere, family friendly. We were playing birdsong, fancy dress, colourful banners. Um, you know, it was entry-level activism. 60,000 people in London got no media attention at all. Nothing. Nothing on the mainstream media uh, websites. The Times, I think, were the only people that gave it any space. Um, as soon as the disruption, you and I are having a conversation. There seems to be a direct link between disruption and, and getting media attention. Why do we want the media attention? Because we need it to, 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 to tell the story. That, that's, that's what it's about. That's why people are throwing soup over famous paintings. They want the opportunity to say, we're in deep shit. And, and we need to get out of it. And the way out of it is to stop exploiting fossil fuels. Uh, and, and, and that has to happen far more rapidly than our governments are, are, are making it happen now. Just finally, Chris, a word for the commuters, the drivers, the workers who are inconvenienced by this protest, some of whom I'm sure are pretty angry about what's just happened. Yeah. And what's your message for them? We all sympathise. Um, with the disruption that this causes, the fact that you might be late for work, taking your kids to school. Um, stories of ambulances being blocked are, are, I think, grossly exaggerated by some of the media. Whenever there's a situation of crisis like that, these guys let people through. On every occasion, I've seen that happening personally. Um, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but look, what is a, an inconvenience of five or ten minutes for you today is nothing compared to the inconvenience that's being felt as I speak in the global south, where, you know, temperatures are hitting record fries. People are dying of thirst. They're dying of hunger. They're migrating from one part of, of, of the world to, to another. Um, in other parts of the world, Alberta at the moment, huge swathes of Alberta in Canada are on fire. You know, it's damaging massive tracts of important ecosystems. It's burning people's houses, ruining their business, their education. Climate change is hurting those people more than it's hurting a five-minute delay in London. You know, this is a very minor inconvenience compared to what's already being suffered by some, and we will be suffering soon. And the one message I have to all of those who are inconvenienced is that you clearly may not agree with the methods of people like Just Stop Oil. But please stop for just a moment and think about what motivates them. What's made them get out of bed, come here, be alienated, get shouted at, potentially get arrested, potentially get locked up or in prison? What's motivated them to do that? Fear. Fear for all of our futures. 
It's so interesting to hear Chris Packham echo many of Sophie's comments, especially about the media blackout of the big one. He really gets to the heart of the issue, and that is that we need to look beyond the actions of climate activists who have been likened to suffragettes and identify with what motivates them. Even if we don't agree with their methods, there is alignment with their motivation, and that is to ensure that we leave a world fit for the next generation. Now, funding non-violent direct action groups is not for everyone, and I'm not advocating for this, but I can understand why, in the face of inaction, people feel compelled to take this route. If this really isn't your thing, though, there are loads of ways to get involved in climate funding that can create systemic change, such as policy advocacy, strategic litigation and anti-lobbying. All of these areas, Client Earth on climate litigation and Influence Map on lobbying, for example, are extraordinary organisations who are making a huge difference. What unites them is that they wouldn't exist without philanthropic funding. And climate litigation in the absence of current government intervention is a really important tool, in my opinion, in our fight against climate change. And if you want to learn more about this, I would really recommend you give Jason Mitchell's podcast, A Sustainable Future, a listen. In one of the episodes, Jason talks to the rather brilliant Amy Rose at Client Earth. Give it a listen on your morning run, your dog walk or wherever you consume your podcast. It's well worth the half hour. Exactly. And just um, related to um, your your investment strategy, because um, most charities or philanthropists will give around sort of three, four, five percent of their assets away each year. Now, you've taken a different decision, which is in line with the fact that we need to halve global emissions within the next six years or 80 months, which is a horrendous, you know, a, a sort of sobering statistic in itself. You've decided to just spend through the whole foundation um, rapidly. Um, but just in terms of the underlying investments that you're making during that period, can you just talk to us about how important it is to look at those from from a sort of climate perspective and what you've been doing? Well, I mean, it's it's for anybody who's giving money, grant giving. You know, um, anybody. You, you know, if you are giving, if you're if you are trying to like, um, I don't know, fund an addiction, don't give money to tobacco and gambling. Um, uh, company, you know, don't invest in them because that's it's the same thing. You're just basically doing something with one thing, one hand, and then taking away with the other. Um, and so our view, very much in climate, was that you do not want to be funding in fossil fuel. Somebody that I was speaking to was saying that you know, if you're giving away like five percent of your income, then that means nineteen times of what you're giving away is what's in your investments. That means that means nineteen times more money is sitting in that investment portfolio. What I would hope you would do, though, is look at that 90, you know, that large investment portfolio and say, now I'm going to do the best I possibly can, can um, with, that, with that portfolio. I'm going to divest from all fossil fuels, first of all. But I'm also going to think about what actually does the planet need? Invest where people need the money. There are enough opportunities, but you do have to probably work a little bit harder. You will yeah. have to go to good managers like mm-hmm. you guys. You've got to go to the places that that know what they're doing, but that's where everyone should be going. Yeah, and I think um, I mean just to give you a little bit of hope, just you, I don't know if you know, but we're the largest manager of charitable assets in the UK. We have about ten billion, and ninety five percent of of the new mandates that come to us are sustainable investment mandates, which are about exactly what you're talking about. I mean, I think that's sort of really at the heart of the sort of Richard Curtis, you know, the massive philanthropist. Um, his sort of 
public awareness make my money matter campaign which is you know this is about everyone you know people's pensions are invested in these assets that are destroying their future and their but they don't know nobody knows about it people don't think about it so it's it's you know I'm it's a great great um point so um so finally we're wrapping up now it's been fantastic to hear your insights but what would be your top two or three um, things that you'd recommend to someone right now? So, so, so if someone's listening, they're, they're either currently funding something um, or they're about to get started in philanthropy and they're really interested in going about climate funding. What would be your sort of top few tips to them? Um, so my first one is if you want to fund in climate, join the Environmental Defenders Network. Just uh-huh. straight away. They are an incredible resource. They are sector wide. They are they're brilliant. It's a great way to to network, to find out more. Um, I'd say that would be my first one. Um, my second one would be to get help, actually. Uh, I think there is, you know, the Environmental Defenders Network will give you quite a good grounding. But if you have more than about £100,000 to... Um, to 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 grant give um you know this can be an overwhelming sector and the last thing you want to do is stop what you're doing you know because you think i can't cope so you know there are resources out there one of the organizations that i work with is called impatience earth and they um, they help they actually offer pro bono advice so um and they will take you a bit like jake did with me on a on a learning journey and really help you get under the skin of where your interest lies and then give you the confidence to go out and, and grant give in that, in that field. Um, so that would be my, my, my second one. And, and within that get help, the other thing I would say is get staff. Like if you have you know, more than probably, you know, a couple of hundred thousand pounds, get some, when I say get help, literally if you're doing it yourself and and you're you know we we we're not a massive fund we had we started off with 10 million and we're going now we have two members of staff the best thing we did was get two members two, yeah. two brilliant members of staff actually and then my third thing is the thing that you said earlier which was about your investments it's like yeah. don't do philanthropy like look at your investments actually that is what your investment managers are there for and if they are opaque and they won't talk to you about yeah. it or or they're dismissive, go and find someone else. It's your money. It's your yeah. choice. And, you know, the amount of people who just stay with their investment managers because they've been with them for, like, forever, show, tell them to improve or go and find someone else. You yeah. know, we don't have the time. We don't have the time. And there's so many so many assets under management sitting with fossil fuels. We've got so many banks who are prepared to fund fossil fuels. And this is... This is my future. This is my kids' futures. This is your kids' futures. That's right. You know, it's um, you know, we are getting to crunch time now. This is uh, we are we are we are six years out, aren't we? Like I like like we said. So, um, so Sophie, that's been fantastic. And um, if someone's listening to this and they're like, I really want to um to fund climate and we've talked about this need for collaboration as well um and what i think is really important is that people who are coming into the sector learn from people like you who've gone through a very painful i'm sure very, you know difficult few years and, and there's many others like you how do they sort of piggyback off the work of great foundations such as yours or quadrature or sif or 30 percy so uh, Gower Street, all of our all of our funding all of our funding on our grants are um most of them are on our website I think they're on our website actually. We're also on 360 giving. So you can see who we're funding. Yeah. Um, and and that's the same with most of the, you know, the the more established organ- um, funding organizations in the sector who are funding the smaller 
smaller um, organizations. So you can see who they're funding. The great thing about this sector, it's so collaborative. You can just pick up the phone. So really, you know, pick up the phone, get in touch with me, get in touch with Sally or Tessa who works with us and ask about them. We are so happy to give you, it's very, very movement generous. So we will talk you through it. We will introduce you, we'll make contacts, anything that you need, we'll do, we'll do. That's So that's the first thing. Secondly, generally as a sector, it's very collaborative. People are very generous with their time. Phone up whoever it is that you see, like I will need to know more about them. I need to know more, I wanna know why you grant, they will, they will help. And the third thing I was also gonna say, um, and it's it's a little bit off the thing, but it's also about saying um, about ways of getting into this sector. There are also, as well as inpatient service, there's also other um, coming together in a cohort of people funding together. Um, Active Philanthropy is another organization that does a course that you can go on, yeah. which I'm, I'm part of. Um, I was, and, and again, that can give you a very good grounding. It will put you in a cohort of people who will start funding together and just funding together makes it you know makes it more interesting it makes it more fun um it just gives it a better experience and you've got much more chance of it actually being impactful thank you for bearing with us on this podcast i know it's been long but as i said at the beginning it is the big one but for me i also found it an uncomfortable episode sophie really doesn't pull any punches you can hear from her the frustration and the despair, particularly when we discuss the lobbying movement, the David and Goliath that philanthropists face. But that said, what struck me is that sheer openness and willingness to collaborate, how you need to fund areas that really align with your interests and just how important it is to fund something that you love that, as Sophie says, recharges you. Next up on Practical Philanthropy, we are going back to our roots where we look at giving back to your local community. Goodbye for now. Until then, you can reach me at lynn.tomlinson at casanovacapital.com.